people think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Stanley Jordan. He's the Director of Kidney Transplantation and Transplant Immunology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And I'm really excited to talk to him today because we have a quite a past because uh, he also took care of me when I was a child um, at UCLA when I was around uh, 14 years old. So, Dr. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lori. It's great to be with you. Well, today we're going to be talking about a topic that is uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, desensitization when you have a high antibody count. Um, as uh, most people know who listen to this show, I just underwent my fourth transplant. And uh, uh, the more antibodies you have, uh, the more difficult it is to get transplanted. So Dr. Jordan's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, desensitization. Cause, so can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Uh, yes. Um, it, it is, it's a term that is derived from uh, the problem, which is sensitization. And uh, this term has been applied to people who are awaiting uh, kidney transplantation or heart transplantation who've been exposed to the blood or tissues of other individuals, usually through pregnancy, previous transplants, or blood transfusion. And in that uh, exposure, individuals will develop antibodies uh, to what we call HLA or human leukocyte antigen targets. And these are referred to as donor specific antibody. Uh, You would never know about it or know the importance of it unless you needed a transplant. Currently, about 30% of the transplant list uh, has these antibodies. And what has been noted is that when you come or when these patients come for kidney transplant, they always have a positive cross-match, which means they have antibodies to the donor cells. And this prevents them from getting a kidney. So the therapies that we have developed uh, and Others as uh, as well have developed are aimed at reducing these antibodies so that we can get around this sensitization problem. So the term desensitization is applied to these uh, therapies that help uh, uh, individuals receive a transplant who have high antibody counts. So with antibodies, basically, um, I had a hundred percent antibodies, but is everybody antibodies different? Yes. Um, it seems to me, and certainly at Cedars uh, Sinai, we have uh, we have a referral center for individuals that have um, uh, this problem. But uh, the problem seems to be growing. Um, I think many years ago, uh, uh, many people felt that there would be uh, <clears throat> that the problem would go away when epigen was introduced because there was multiple blood transfusions given to people on dialysis who had renal failure. But it hasn't gone away. It's actually grown. I think it's grown because of uh, the uh, uh, number of retransplants in individuals like yourself and and the uh, pregnancy issue, uh, which is a sensitizing event. So uh, most of the people we see are women who have this problem, uh, and um, a higher percentage, probably 60 to 70 percent, uh, and uh, the antibody titers vary 
greatly from the percent of uh, antibodies to uh, the targets. There's more than 100 targets, HLA targets, that can be uh, uh, where you can develop antibodies to them. Uh, and the titer or how strong these antibodies are also varies. So it's, there's a breadth and depth to these responses that can create problems for us. So, for example, in yourself, uh, you have basically antibodies to every target except your own, and uh, this would preclude you from having a transplant ever uh, unless uh, therapies were given uh, to, uh, you know, to reduce these antibodies and allow the transplantation. So in my case, I had 100 antibodies that were resistant, but all of them weren't created equal. Is, is that a good way to explain it? A good way of looking at it, and that's how we make this work, because uh, it's, uh, I, I tell people it's sort of like looking at uh, a, a river that may be a mile long, but in some places maybe it's only a foot deep. Uh, and that's where you want to cross it. So what we try to do is reduce the depth of the antibody titers and uh, with our therapies, and uh, we know that we can then place kidneys in and not have them rejected. So can you explain a little bit about the treatment protocol? Uh, in my case, um, I was lucky to be able to, uh, you felt you could tackle my antibodies, <laughs> and, uh, and successfully so. I have a creatinine of 0.8. But um, you tell a little bit about the therapy that you would um, suggest. Uh, yes, that's, that's a very important. I think that uh, uh, these therapies have been evaluated and talked about a lot recently in different venues. Uh, and uh, there are many different protocols that are used at, uh, at different centers. But uh, I think ultimately uh, there's a consensus that the high-dose uh, IVIG therapy with uh, rituximab uh, which is a antibody that depletes uh, B cells or that make the bad antibodies, and the use of plasmapheresis and low-dose intravenous immune globulin are uh, a consensus uh, protocols that uh, almost everyone in the world that does this would accept as the best ways of desensitizing uh, patients. So with the IVIG, just explain, and, and I thought this was quite amazing. I just basically had it when I was on dialysis, and it was administered during the treatment. And do you have many side effects? The only thing I had afterwards was a, a little bit of a headache, and then I had a lot of energy from the steroids that I had to take during it. <laughs> so that, and I basically had, I think, a, a few treatments. Yes, uh, the, um, we have tailored the IVIG treatments uh, uh, over the years to try to compress the treatment protocols from four months to one month. And uh, IVIG is a very interesting drug. It stands for intravenous immune globulin. It is a drug that was developed uh, initially for people that have no antibodies. And uh, I guess the best way of putting it is sort of like using fire to fight fire, that what we've noted over the years is that higher doses of the immune globulins uh, regulate uh, immunity in a very beneficial way, especially in autoimmune diseases and what we have found in transplant too. So if they're bad antibodies, so to speak, like the antibodies to HLA, they can be turned off or suppressed by the intravenous immune globulin. Uh, the benefits of the therapy also is that it has a, a protective effect on preventing infections. Uh, we, uh, 
first studied this drug many years ago, back in, I think, 1997, we started our NIH study uh, that with a placebo and showed that it worked in reducing antibody and improving transplant rates uh, in high, highly sensitized patients. So this drug is a, uh, is a very beneficial drug in the kidney transplant uh, arena and is gaining more, more uses every day. And uh, we feel like it is uh, critical to all of these uh, desensitization protocols. And then I went through a treatment of rituxan, which was a basically about an eight-hour infusion. And that really wasn't painful. Again, just had to get steroids. So, <laughs> um, you know, had a little bit of, I think, a blood pressure rise afterwards, but, you know, nothing that couldn't be controlled with medication. But uh, do you find any other side effects? Maybe I was abnormal in that situation. No, I, I should go back and uh, uh, maybe make a statement first about the IVIG because uh, when we did this study, you know, it's been probably 14 years ago now, uh, through from 90, 1997 through 2002, uh, we gave uh, about uh, more than uh, 300 infusions of IVIG versus a placebo, which is like saline. And when we assessed uh, side effects, uh, and this drug was given on dialysis, the side effect profile, about 50% of the patients in the IVIG group had headaches and 25% in the placebo. Uh, but all other side effects were, com were, were balanced, and actually there was, uh, some were more common in the placebo group. So we feel like the drug's a very, very safe drug to give on dialysis and that people tolerate it very well. Uh, the other, uh, with rituximab, again, is a very interesting drug, and we began to look at this in about 2004, 2005, because we know that B cells in the, of the immune system make antibodies, and this is a drug that will deplete the B cells. We felt by adding this, it might help uh, boost the effects of IVIG, and in fact, it does appear to be doing that. Uh, and it is a monoclonal, again, antibody that's given very similar to, and uh, uh, or the side effects would be similar to that seen with the IVIG infusions. And usually they're controlled well with a little steroids and Benadryl. Uh, so we, what we hope to achieve with that therapy is a long-term suppression of the immune function uh, that is causing the bad HLA antibodies. So both the rituxan and the IVIG, you're basically fighting fire with fire with both of them. Well, <clears throat> the IVIG more so because, you know, here you're giving antibodies uh, to people that have antibodies. Uh, the, the rituximab is an antibody, but it's directed at the uh, B cells in your body. And so it, it would uh, remove those cells that are making those antibodies. So we're trying to block the existing antibodies with the IVIG and then remove the factory, so to speak, with rituximab. Well, one thing I found interesting when I was getting IVIG uh, that I learned, and, and please clarify, that it, it didn't put me at more risk for infection. That's correct. You know, which everybody's like, oh, you're being desensitized. You know, you can't. And actually, I went into an appointment. I'm like, I have a, tickets to the Pantages to see a play. And, um, you know, should I go? And uh, one of the physicians there said, oh, well, if you don't want to go, I'll go. <laughs> and so, uh, um, you know, which said, you know, you're, you have to be careful and take precautions, but you're not at more risk when you're being desensitized. That's correct. And, you know, what, what we found, and we have... Uh analyzed our patients uh, that have been treated with rituximab and IVIG 
uh, over the last uh, five or six years uh, and compared the rates of infections to our low-risk kidney transplant patients. Uh, this is a paper that's now in press and will be published uh, hopefully in the next few months. Uh, but what we found is that there's no increased risk for infections with uh, desensitization compared to uh, the low-risk kidney transplant patients. And this is very gratifying to us because we feel like we're able to offer, you know, uh, offer this immune modulation and allow people to achieve kidney transplant uh, without increasing their risk for uh, infectious complications. And then the, the last treatment that I went through was plasmapheresis. And, uh, you know, that wasn't painful. I mean, it's basically slow dialysis. You had to schedule another treatment within your week. Um, can you explain a little bit about how plasmapheresis works? Yeah, plasmapheresis is, uh, as I mentioned a bit earlier, that uh, <clears throat> there are two common protocols that are used uh, for desensitization, the IVIG and rituximab, high-dose IVIG and rituximab, and then plasmapheresis and low-dose IVIG. Uh, plasmapheresis is, I think, the best way to think about it. It's sort of like, uh, you know, basically the machine spins down your blood and removes the bad antibodies. It removes the plasma. And we exchange the plasma uh, that from your body uh, with uh, albumin. And so it's just a physical removal of these antibodies. This has worked very well, especially when it's combined with IVIG. And we think that the reason that it works well with IVIG is because IVIG can block any existing bad antibodies that uh, remain and also can suppress the rebound. Uh, if we just did plasmapheresis alone and removed all the bad antibodies, uh, within a few days you would see them shoot back up like a rocket because uh, one of the most powerful stimulus to antibody production is removal. So... Uh, by using the IVIG replacement uh, after uh, the plasma freezes, we can prevent that and achieve, you know, a, a sort of lowering of the antibody titers to the uh, HLA targets on the kidney. Then we can do the transplant, but it has to be done, and you know, fairly quickly after the uh, freezes is completed so we don't see that rebound effect. Well, in my case, I was lucky to have a living donor. So when you were working at my case, you could tell exactly which antibodies I had to my donor. Correct. And what I found quite fascinating was after I received the treatment, I didn't know I was getting the transplant till like a couple of days before, but you did a donor-specific antibody test. Can you explain a little bit how you are more competent about moving forward with a living donor transplant with somebody with high antibodies? Yes. I mean, uh, I think this is really one of the biggest uh, sort of synergistic developments uh, in uh, transplant medicine. Uh, Many years ago, we were, you know, doing these treatments, and we would look at the cross match after our treatments, and we would make a decision to go forward. Now, the technology for measuring very specific antibodies to the donor, or donor-specific antibodies, or we call them DSAs, uh, are available. So, little beads are coated with these HLA antigens, and we can measure the intensity, uh, well, the number and intensity of antibodies in your body to uh, the donor. Uh, targets, and we can have a real-time assessment of how our therapies are working, and we know exactly how far down we have to go 
in order to uh, progress with the transplant. This has really been a big advancement because we don't have to completely eliminate the antibodies, but if we get below a certain level, we know that we can transplant and, and not have a high chance of rejection. Well, that's what I was. I found was fascinating about, you know, my three previous transplants, you know, it was a good match. The first two didn't work and the third one did, but it was basically like, let's go for the transplant and see what happens as opposed to having a little bit more competence going into the transplant. <laughs> and that's what I've been trying to explain to patients, although it's very... Um, it's very nerve-wracking whether you're going, you know, for any type of transplant because it's surgery. Well, can you explain a little bit about the process of uh, when you do not have a living donor, uh, the advancements that you're making with helping people get off the transplant list by this treatment plan? Thank you uh, for, for bringing that up. And I think this is one of the areas where Cedars has, uh, has been a leader uh, and, you know, it, it started out many years ago with the IVIG study. Uh, um, uh, we, had, uh, we did a study with the National Institutes of Health and uh, treated people that were, uh, had uh, panel reactive antibodies of greater than 80%. And the objective of that study was just to see if the drug worked, just to lower the antibody. Uh, we didn't anticipate that, uh, or, and we weren't looking for, any improvements in transplant rates. However, what we saw was a doubling of the transplant rate in the people that got the IVIG drug compared to placebo. And most of these transplants came within six months to a year after uh, the treatment, and they were from deceased donors. So this was in a very interesting phenomenon, and what we found is that there was a durable uh, suppression of antibodies that allowed many of these patients to get a transplant you know, several months later, uh, and this was something that could not be done with the phoresis uh, treatments because of the need to have a, a close proximity to the treatment uh, for the kidney transplant to be done. And we further refined that by using the rituximab drug, which also has a very long half-life. It has about a year or year and a half half-life. So when we treat patients, when we select them properly from the deceased donor list, these are people who have to have enough wait time uh, on the list to get offers, who are sensitized, of course, that have antibodies. Uh, we, would, we call them in and treat them. Uh, we also use matching techniques that help us uh, eliminate some of the sort of deepest holes, so to speak, of, in terms of crossing the river, where they have very high titer antibodies. We may say, okay, we're going to eliminate this antibody and this or this antigen and that antigen, but we'll take everything else. And after treatment, we will see uh, we see reductions in these uh, antibodies, and uh, we are able to transplant about 75% of these patients uh, within a year uh, after treatment. Most within six months. The average wait time is about five months after yeah. treatment, and most of these people have been well. The average wait time on dialysis has been more than 10 years. Well, one of my dear friends uh, that was transplanted there, she was on uh, dialysis about 9 or 10 years, and her name kept popping up at the top of the list. But, you know, she couldn't get the kidney, and uh, she got treatment with desensitization. And then probably I would say within, you know, six weeks she got a call 
Uh, and, you know, very exciting because, you know, uh, I like to call myself a retread, uh, somebody who comes back in for transplant over and over again. And, you know, she was a retread. I, I'm a retread, and this gives a lot of hope. One of the things that, um, is there any time when you can't work with people's antibodies and desensitize them? Well, we have looked, you know, we try to assess everybody, but certainly there are some patients uh, who are, we cannot crack. And I, fortunately, I would say it's um, uh, less than uh, 20% of the people that we see. Uh, for living donors, we, we were able to transplant uh, 95% of the patients we see. Um, and for the deceased donors, it's about 75%. And um, so we feel like we're really have pushed it uh, to a very good point. Uh, one has to look at this in the context of what would happen uh, if, uh, you know, if these people remain on dialysis receive no desensitization therapy, what are their chances for getting a kidney transplant? And over the last 10 years, it's been about 6.5% per year. So we're talking about like a 10x increase in transplant rates with the current desensitization uh, therapies. But there are individuals that we've not been able to help. And uh, you know, we're waiting, and we're always looking at newer therapies. We have some newer uh, protocols that we're going to be doing. Uh, new drugs that are very exciting that we think will, uh, you know, continue to improve our ability to provide this therapy and uh, and uh, what we call antibody reduction therapy. Now, one of the things with this desensitization, uh, do you find that there's an increase in, in infection or cancer in um, patients? Uh, I, I basically take the same transplant meds that I took with my last transplant, uh, pretty much. But uh, just with the treatment protocol, is there increased risk? That's a you know great question, and uh, the answer is in our program, and I think the other programs um, that do uh, large numbers of desensitization procedures, that this has not been the case. We just finished looking at our uh, information on um, uh, about 200 plus patients treated since um, 2006. Uh, with uh, the IVIG rituximab protocol and the other drugs that go along with it, and looking up to four years at infection rates, um, and compared that to a group of patients that were, you know that were low risk. And again, what we found was that um, there was no increased risk of infection or malignancy. Uh, in fact, the malignancies that we saw uh, that we thought would be related to immunosuppression were in the low risk group, not in our high risk group. So. I think we can say with confidence that this is not going to increase uh, uh, the risk of infections beyond what we would normally see in our kidney transplant population. So that's very gratifying. Yes, definitely to me too. <laughs> uh, has this uh, protocol been applied to all ages of patients needing transplants? That's a good question too. You know, we're doing more pediatric patients here. Our youngest patient is uh, one and a half. Wow. And uh, was transplanted last year and is doing very well. So um, this is um, a, a need that, uh, you know, spans all age groups. 
It's it's very exciting because of the fact that, you know, I have been getting a lot of emails and phone calls about, wow, you know, you're giving me hope because I can potentially get transplanted. And just the idea that you can get transplanted makes you feel better. Uh, uh, the question that I have is there's an, a, another protocol out there called um, a pair donation. And I know that that's one of the things that Cedars has not chosen to do. And, you know, I like people to know all their options. Can you uh, talk a little bit about um, your philosophy? Yes. Uh, and thank you for bringing it up because I did want to mention that. I think that is a another option for sensitized patients. And uh, in fact, we're going to be looking at, uh, at uh, we're, we're going to be joining the UNOS uh, uh, Paired Exchange Network, which is being developed or is, uh, and reinvigorated uh, this year. But I want to address some of those issues because uh, I think that the, the nature of our patient population um, has been, uh, and referrals for desensitization have been primarily from uh, patients who do not have living donors, uh, thus uh, would not benefit from a paired exchange uh, uh, type of program. Um, the uh, paired exchange programs uh, in the country that exist now, there's UCLA has a very active program, uh, San Antonio uh, has active program, uh, and the promise has been that you know, or the thought has been that, okay, we will have a group of uh, donors in a pool and we can take sensitized patients and uh, we'll find a better match for them in that pool and then their donor can uh, give a kidney to some other individual who's waiting. Um, unfortunately, that paradigm has not worked at all. Uh, the uh, Dr. Bob Montgomery, who's, at, who's been very active in this, uh, uh, feels that it is it's not not feasible uh, for the sensitized patients, the broadly sensitized patients, and I would agree with him. Uh, it's just a very, very, very small chance of finding someone that you would match with. However, what Dr. Montgomery has done, and I think has been a, a big advancement, is that he has uh, paired, uh, or I guess that's that's going to use the word twice, but paired desensitization with the paired donation. So patients that are highly sensitized uh, uh, can be treated as we would do and then run in the uh, paired donation uh, match. And often that will help them find a better match. It's just the same thing that we are doing with the deceased donor area where you can't get a match uh, because the antibodies are high. But once we treat patients, we're able to find matches for them. So this seems to work with the living donors uh, as well in the paired donation uh, paradigm. So I think for uh, people who have high antibodies that are encouraged to get in, and, and a living donor who are encouraged to get into these uh, paired donation uh, systems, uh, they're, they're probably going to need to be desensitized before they would receive a transplant as well. But I think that, there, you know, these are many different ways of attacking this problem, but I, I think it is something that is beneficial. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting to just learn all the new technologies because one of the things I wasn't even aware of when I had several donors come forward uh, to uh, donate a kidney to me, which is just so overwhelming, is that, uh, you don't even need the same blood type. And uh, and Dr. Raphael Villacana will talk about that on another interview. But 
you know, a lot of people say, oh, I have a living donor, but they're not the same blood type, or I'm an O and they're an A. And I'm like, that doesn't matter anymore, <laughs> which is, 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 is a little difficult for me to wrap my brain around because I've always like, you know, you're an O and you need an O. Uh, a, a question that comes up among many patients is, well, if I enroll in the CEDARS program for desensitization, I can't multi-list. And I think I understand the rationale behind that because it's probably not an inexpensive therapy. But can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. We, we asked uh, that patients who come to our program, because it is such a specialized uh, program, uh, uh, enter into, I guess for lack of a better word, a partnership with us to try to achieve transplantation. First of all, we are you know, treating uh, with these uh, specialized drugs, trying to reduce antibody. Uh, the HLA lab here at Cedars is, is a very specialized lab that can interpret cross matches and antibody uh, levels uh, in the context of uh, these uh, drugs being in the system, which often will interfere with assays, and that other centers may preclude a patient from getting a kidney. And we have seen this happen where people have been multiple-listed, either have had kidney offers and did not go forward with that uh, where we would have. And uh, so in our own experience, we've asked that um, that people uh, be listed with us, uh, that, you know, where we are able to interpret the cross-matches and analyze antibody tests, perform the kidney transplant, then we have a very specialized treatment post-transplant, too, to help prevent the antibody rejection. So it seems to work out better for us that way, and, um, and I think that that's true for most desensitization centers. I don't think anyone would want to uh, desensitize and then uh, have someone else uh, transplant the patient where the uh, protocols may not be followed correctly or... Uh, the, the center may not be used to taking care of these patients. Do most insurances pay for this treatment? Yes, they do. I mean, for our uh, uh, center, we have specific contracts with uh, uh, multiple insurance companies to provide this therapy specifically. And uh, Medicare uh, uh, also pays for it uh, uh, based on our work that was completed uh, through the NIH study in 2000. And, uh, for. Um, so it is uh, paid for primarily because it does save a lot of money from patients being on dialysis. If we can transplant patients, obviously it's better for them and it's also better uh, in terms of cost for the insurers. Now, how far do people travel for this treatment? There's uh, different facilities throughout the country that do it, but uh, can you explain a little bit about if somebody's listening in Georgia? <laughs> We actually have patients from Georgia, so uh, we have patients from all over the U.S., uh, mostly, again, people who have do not have living donors um, that uh, are sensitized, who've been referred to us. Uh, uh, we have international patients, but these are patients uh, that uh, do have living donors but are sensitized that come to us as well. So it's been um, sort of a, a challenge to provide these services to people who are from out of state. We work uh, very closely with them and try to get the therapies done in a very uh, compact sort of way, but you know, know that they will have to get here for a kidney once it becomes available uh, fairly quickly. And then they'll have to stay for a little while afterwards. We ask that uh, we ask if people from out of town um, that they be in the area for two to three months uh, after transplant. 
before they return back to their yeah, no, it's a, I have to say, you know, living with kidney disease for, you know, since 1968 for 43 years and actually fondly remembering you as a pediatric patient, you always walking in with a smile and you have such a great bedside manner that um, you really did make me feel comfortable and confident as I joined the program. And I'm happy to report, you know, as I said, I'm six months out, I have a 0.8 creatinine, and I think it's the first time in my life that I've never been on blood pressure medication because my blood pressure runs about 100 over 60. And I recall you telling me, do you have any potato chips? <laughs> uh, and I guess I would be um, classified as, you know, a, a extremely successful case six months out, right? <laughs> Say that. Yeah, we're very happy for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, the saying is, you know... It shows the miracles that can be done today. It, it is. It's, you know, uh, it, it's a kind of a crazy statement, but, you know, I'm like, you know, I am peeing all I can pee, thanks to Cedars. Uh, but quickly, um, you know, I, I would just like to know what made you want to just get into this area of desensitization because you are the guru in the world and this and we basically call this protocol Jordan juice <laughs> <laughs> thank you uh, I think <laughs> but, uh, uh, anyway it's it's very interesting because um, it goes back many many years uh, uh, from my uh, training and uh, in pediatrics and kidney diseases and immunology. And I did an immunology fellowship uh, back in the late 1970s after I finished my training at UCLA. And, uh, uh, around 1979 or 1980, the drug IVIG was introduced for treatment of uh, immune deficiencies. And we saw some of that in the patients that I was involved in. But one of the diseases that children get called Kawasaki syndrome, which is a inflammatory disease of the blood vessels and it can make children very sick. Uh, it was noted that when they got the drug IVIG, they got completely better and all this inflammation went away. And uh, there was uh, also uh, people had noted that there were probably what we call blocking antibodies in the IVIG prep. So I got interested in that because of my experience in the and then ultimately, when I became involved with kidney transplant, 87 or 88, I believe it was, when I first sort of made the connection with IVIG and the HLA antibodies, and we showed that in our laboratory, uh, that it would actually block these HLA antibodies. And uh, we had an opportunity to treat a young man here at Cedars who had no dialysis access and had been on dialysis for about 12 years and was not going to do well, obviously. And I asked our uh, Cedars Institutional Review Board if I could try the IVIG because I felt it might work, and they agreed to that. And we treated him, and his antibodies went down. So it worked in the test tube, it worked in the patient, and he ultimately got transplanted, and he still has his transplant. So that was 1991. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that evolved uh, into these clinical trials, and to the therapy that we're doing today. So I, I look back on it, it's sort of just serendipity in a lot of ways uh, uh, and experience and just thinking about, you know, uh, the types of uh, patients that I had seen and how they had responded to this drug. And eventually it just sort of synthesized in my 
mind that this might be good for our transplant patients, and it appears to be so. Well, it is. It's quite amazing. And uh, if people want to learn more about uh, your program, or uh, how, how do they learn about it? Well, uh, there's several ways. Uh, I think that the, um, the best way is probably go to the Cedars-Sinai uh, website and just look up kidney transplant. We have information on our what we call our highly sensitized program, or our TIP program, we call it transplant immunotherapy program, and we talk about the, the types of therapies there, uh, as well as our ABO incompatible program. I know Dr. Villacana will talk about that. And uh, there's a lot of information uh, just, you know, on the web now about desensitization and these protocols um, uh, that uh, I think papers that people can read, many of them are scientific, I, I, I think, but uh, it has been getting a lot of attention. There was a, just a paper last, uh, I think, week or uh, by the Johns Hopkins group uh, talking about the benefits of desensitization in terms of, of reducing the risk of death and uh, extending the life uh, of patients uh, uh, who were transplanted at Johns Hopkins compared to people who had to remain on dialysis that were sensitized. So. I, I think that this therapy has really um, uh, come of age, and that it's something that you know we can implement successfully most of the time, and we can uh, hopefully help help more people by by using this therapy. And if if they want to uh, schedule an appointment, do they just basically call and and go through this normal protocol of getting evaluated? Uh, anybody that's interested in uh, being evaluated, or if they have antibody problems or told that they're not transplantable because of their incompatibilities, we would love to see them um, and, and, be, and, and to uh, try to help them out. The, uh, probably the best way there is at the website at Cedars-Sinai website or uh, I guess cedarsinai.com, uh, you can get information on the program and there's a phone number to call for appointments. Well, you know, it's interesting uh, among uh, the patients in the community. They're like, yeah, they love a challenge. <laughs> you don't back away from the challenges uh, when patients are uh, have high antibodies, as I know a lot of centers just kind of shy away. That's true. I, I think that's, uh, I mean, that, that's the reality. I think, uh, you know, I think for uh, from my standpoint and my colleagues at other centers, it's, um, um, you know, we are under a lot of different pressures. Uh, the patients need to know this. I think that uh, the uh, scientific registry of transplant recipients keeps, you know, minute-to-minute data on how well we're doing. There's no uh, concessions given regarding the the difficulty of the patients you deal with. So if you have bad outcomes, you may lose certification from Medicare or from other insurance companies. And so uh, it's it's tough. And I think that it's uh, you know you have to be uh, you have to choose. Uh, the types of things you want to do, you know, the risk, the high-risk patients are as what as sort of the raison d'etre for for our Cedars program. We've been doing it for many years, but it is a razor's edge in many ways, uh, and we have to uh, uh, make sure that we choose patients that would, can benefit uh, from this therapy. And uh, and uh, and you know, one one of the things that we've been able to do is to reduce the risk for complications. Uh, you sort of have a lot of experience with it. We have a, a good team approach, so I think that helps us uh, 
achieve the, the outcomes that we have, but it, it, it is risky. There's no question. Well, and I was impressed because you have a whole program wrapped around it. And, you know, I did my research. I went to USTransplants.org and looked at the statistics of all the facilities in the area, and your, your numbers are as good as anybody else's, if not better. And, you know, knowing that you take so many... Um, you know, we also refer to ourselves, or I do, sometimes, you know, I'm a train wreck when it comes to antibodies. So you do take a lot of the patients that are difficult. And Dr. Jordan, I just want to tell you, you know, thank you so much for uh, embracing this technology because I'm here because of it, and many people are. And if there's anything else you'd like to say in closing, um, I think we've pretty much covered the topic, but there's so much to learn. And as you said, go to your website and read, and we'll post those articles on our website so that patients have access to them. Well, Lori, thank you so much. You know, and it's been a pleasure for me to be involved with your life for so long, and I'm really uh, very, very happy that we're able to get you back in the pink with a uh, working kidney now. And uh, it's just been uh, it's been a great uh, ride for me, and uh, I'm just so great uh, grateful that we have, uh, you know, the team we have and the great drugs that we have to, uh, to make transplantation possible for the sensitized patients. Well, thank you, and uh, I'm sure I'll see you at a future clinic day. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. 